Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. That we always do at the start of a Monday. We have someone in to look back at some of the stories from the weekend or indeed stories that are ongoing today. Uh, today it's Johnny Fallon, Strategy Director at Car Communications. Good afternoon, Johnny. Afternoon, Sean. Uh, so we could be seeing some white smoke about uh, the, the protocol in the not too distant future. Would you be generally optimistic about that? I think we, we probably can be somewhat optimistic about it. Um, you know, you never know with, with the, the way politics works in Northern Ireland. But I think there's been huge build up to this at an international stage. You know, like the, the EU has been building up to it. Sunak has been building up to this for some time. They've given very little details, but all the theatre around it is that, look, this is this is the moment. This is the kind of break. And look, I think you probably have all people outside of, of, of the DUP. I think you probably have everybody else in Ireland, in Europe, in the UK going, maybe it's finally, this is the mm. door to the Brexit saga being finally over. We can all move on. They get a deal. And they sort out whatever they've got to do with it after that and just get moving on it. And I think that sense may carry it over the line because if it, this doesn't go through, there's just nowhere to go. Um, yeah. I don't think they've, they're going to be able to figure out where to start all over again. It's not like it was with Theresa May and Boris Johnson. They've got this. I think they've come this far. They need to push it through at this stage. Yeah, but it, but that kind of would imply they can announce a deal today or, or whenever. Mm-hmm. There'll still be a messy period when we have to see, does the yeah. DUP accept it? You know, what will the ERG do within the Tories? Yeah, I think that's, and, and the ERG is on one side and, and the DUP on another. And the whole question with the DUP is that they wanted to try get the Stormont back up and running. And whether or not that actually happens, I think we could be some time waiting because I think the DUP could even accept today's deal and then still say but that doesn't guarantee we're back in Stormont until we've other stuff agreed or sorted out oh, and yeah. I think they could push that one down the line um, but at the same time the problem for the DUP is look they have a big bargaining chip at the moment mm. and they can use that or they can stick to an ideology that says no no nothing ever no change in that but right now it looks like Sunak can push this through he can push it through with the support of Labour and that means the DUP have to ask themselves you know look do we use that bargaining chip? Do we get something out of this, some guarantee, some support from the government, some access to government on other policies that we're interested in, some support from them on when Stormont reopens that will be certain social policies and that they're interested in too, that they will want the British government to guarantee they're not going to interfere with how they implement them. All of that kind of thing. They might be able to extract something now, but if they don't go with it, mm-hmm. they're in a situation where if Sunak gets this through pushes it through in the UK, keeps the ERG without from doing huge damage to him and the UK moves on, Northern Ireland has no cards left to play and that's where it gets really tricky for the DUP. The question on the other side is if the ERG, how much damage can they do? But at this stage, it's how much damage do they want to do to the Conservatives' parties? Conservatives mm. cannot really go through another leader. They cannot really go through another change in leadership. They can't go through more division at this stage. Labour already going ahead of them in the polls. So really, you know, if the Conservatives are to have any hope, it is in probably Sunak taking this risk and saying, look, we get this done and once people feel the deal is through, they're happy to move on and we all start moving on and getting back to the rest of the economy that people in Britain actually want to be focused on right now. Yeah, I suppose he's going to have to eyeball the DUP and say, this is it, you're not getting anything else and make them believe it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. I think he has to be in a position where he's going to say to the DUP, look, 
I'm willing to meet you halfway. I'm willing to give you concessions, talk to you about more, get your support on this. But if you can't meet me and we can't do a deal, I will go ahead without you completely and yeah. we'll push it through. And and I think that's where that, that brinksmanship comes up. If politics all about taking risks. And for Richie Sunak, this is a chance to kind of put distance between himself and Boris Johnson, Theresa May, you know, previous leaders who came this far, weren't able to get it over the line. If he's the guy who finally gets Britain and the EU to have a deal and move on, that's going to be much stronger for him. Yeah. Also, you'd wonder if... I know, I because mean, I would imagine if Boris Johnson starts trying to torpedo it, that it won't play well, probably, with the British public. But, but at the same time, will Boris Johnson be able to resist doing that? I, I don't think he'll be able to resist. And there's a hardcore, you know, who are always going to be there wanting a tougher deal and a bigger break from Europe. I mean, you've, the Farages of the world are going to be out criticising whatever happens in mm. it anyway. But I think the vast majority of British voters just want this saga to be over. They want to be out of the EU, have some format of going ahead with their lives outside of the EU and just get it done with and not hear the word Brexit anymore. And this probably <laughs> gives them the, the route. Well, for that many British voters who actually know what the protocol is or what, <laughs> what all the kerfuffle uh, is about. Anyway, closer to home, uh, uh, the uh, Social Democrats uh, have a new leader. Will it make much difference to their fortunes, do you think? Um, I think it's it's certainly going to be a help for them at this stage. Uh, they've suffered a little bit. They had this policy of the dual leader thing. And I've, I've before said to you, I think that we, we, you know, it was a bit like there was a fad in Premier League soccer clubs in the 90s where they had dual managers and it <laughs> died out after about a season after a couple of clubs tried it. Uh, because, you know, you lack that authority. And, you know, the funny thing is in democracy, you need lots of democracy in the state. But within the political parties operating in that, you can't afford too much democracy. You have to have quite an authoritative voice. You have to have Mm. a strong leader. People react by being close to the leader. It can be quite clientelistic within the parties and within the constituencies. So you need that one voice. Um, The challenge, though, now for Holly Kearns is she's coming to it very young. I think she'll play very well with her current voters. All eyes will be on her to see how does she play to voters outside of the Social Democrats' current base. Yeah. So she needs to attract other votes uh, beyond what they're already getting. And that's going to be start with her within her own party. She has to very quickly imprint her own authority on this. What does Holly Kern's party look like? Because if it becomes just the same Social Democrats as it was and the leader doesn't look authoritative and strong and this is my party early on, this is a new tack and new, new direction with it, then people begin to move off in all their old different directions and think, oh, yeah, business as usual. She also doesn't want to have backseat drivers. She's got the help and support of two very strong TDs in, in Roisin Shortall and Catherine Murphy. She will want that. Yeah. But she doesn't want to allow them to become backseat drivers where it's seen as, oh, well, they're still leading and they're mm. guiding Holly in any way. So she's, I think, she's smart enough to know that's what she's got to get in here. She's got to get control of the party really quickly. Then the following challenge, once she manages to do that, is to keep herself there's there's unfortunately it's a natural thing there's going to be continual comparisons between her and Ivana Bacic they're going to be Labour and Social Democrats very similar parties they're going to be talked about being similar kind of leaders um, and she doesn't want to get into that comparison she needs to break out of that circle and be beyond that and then she's got the, the challenge of you know look I, I said to you politics in Ireland it's, it's very clientelistic at constituency level and that's fine at a certain amount of keeps it democratic keeps people connected with it but it's up to the leader of the party to deliver the programmatic change and Irish voters are increasingly looking for big programmatic change where they'll vote for anybody in a party that they think is going to deliver the answers 
But to deliver that programmatic change, she then needs to convince people this is somebody who's got the political ingenuity to get policies through mm. uh, that are maybe difficult. She's going to have to show that she has the ability to, you know, take hard decisions here and there where they're needed, uh, push the party in a direction sometimes it may not want to go, all of those things. She can only do that over time. But look, I think she's got a good start to doing it. But there's some very big, big hurdles there for her to cross in that. In in a game where, you know, when you look at Mary Lou MacDonald, Leo Vradker, Michal Martin, you know, in the others, there's there's long years of experience and, and having built those reputations early on uh, for her to kind of step into that, it's not going to be easy. No, indeed it's not. Now, and she, she repeatedly has said mm-hmm. no to the question of William Murray with the Labour Party. But, like, isn't that the biggest disadvantage they have? Also, the biggest disadvantage Labour had, because it's a kind of a shit and shite situation, really, isn't it? (laughs) It is, yeah. I mean, look, at I think if you ask any ordinary voter, they look at it and they say to you, well, there's not much difference between the two. Labour probably has a reputation of being a little bit more, in some cases, you could call it old-fashioned. In other cases, it'd say it's more trade unions, Mm. Labour kind of thing. Whereas the Social Democrats have come to this with a newer kind of half the climate change agenda from the Greens, a little bit of the left wing agenda from Labour but without that hardcore kind of trade unionist view if you like that they're a softer approach but reality is if Labour and the Social Democrats were joined or did join then they have a fairly sizable party in Mm. there and and they have some very experienced heads within us they do say and want very similar things but I think look the Social Democrats are now at a point where they believe they are the bigger party and the problem is if they were where the merger gets into a difficulty is if they merge, they become the Labour Party. Yes. And the Social Democrats, have, their brand <laughs> yeah. is, is, they may be smaller at times, they may be struggling at times, they may be seen, but their brand is still Labour Party and that doesn't change. That's never going to change. And it's a good, strong brand. Social Democrats is still a brand building. So if they merge, even if the Social Democrats were bigger, they'd end up being subsumed in some way into Labour and they don't want that. So I think, you know, it'll all come down to the next election. I think they'll manage to probably stay apart till till another election. But then where the, the cards fall after that, if neither party makes it into government, they've got a problem. Yeah. Yeah. How safe is Holly Karen's seat, actually? Uh, that's not all that safe. You know, yeah, she's a big yeah. job down there. Mind you, profile helps. You know, yeah. profile should help being on the big debates, being there as a leader. Unlike when the two leaders, she'll be on every leader's debate. She'll be on the show. She'll get that. So that does help. Some people think it takes away from the constituency, but it does help. But that said... She has a tough job in her own right. She has to manage that base down there. She has to be sure she's fighting off parties like Fine Gael and that also looking for the seat. And unfortunately, one of the things for the Social Democrats in their success is that they're very transfer friendly, but they're not everybody's choice for first preference vote. So that Mm. leaves you sweating on transfers on the day. Never a nice place to be, especially if you're a party leader. Yeah. Uh, also, as well, uh, the, uh, as we, uh, we all know, it was uh, last weekend was the uh, first anniversary of uh, the Russia's uh, attempted a full invasion uh, of Ukraine. Uh, what do you think is going to happen o- over the next year or years? Yeah, it's. I suppose from. I mean, in 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 the side, I would look at it from a communications perspective. It's been mm. you know something to observe and how um, the narrative has changed from the Russian perspective. As in, originally they were going in here to take out uh, uh, what they called a Nazi regime, mm. and they were going to remove the leadership, put install their own leadership. 
Now that narrative has completely changed and this is a war of survival against NATO who want to wipe out Russia and wipe out the Russian way of life and uh, that, you know, the talk is almost like we're about to be invaded. Therefore, we have to strike out and hit these guys first. That's an interesting change of narrative because it just shows where Russia has gone from thinking this was something they could do and the world wouldn't respond to us and they could have it done relatively quickly to we're actually in quite a prolonged war. But as a result, I would expect, I think, look, simply on the PR battle that's out there, one of the things that's changed in it is is how Europe has reacted to it. A year ago, when we started this, if you'd sat down and looked at it, you would have said a lot of European countries terrified, terrified at the energy uh, crisis as it was hitting terrified militarily that Russia's reputation was, well, if we can't put soldiers in there because yeah. start World War Three and we'll all be wiped out and they could roll into the Baltic states, everything else. A year on, you're really getting a sense from all the talk and European countries as they're communicating it, they're kind of saying, we're not that scared of Russia. Having seen them in action over a year, don't think they're that hot of an army if all of the tech that Europe has, all of the superior equipment, they don't have the numbers that Russia has, but the equipment seems to make a big difference on the ground and Russia can't seem to overcome that. So I think it would make sense that for Putin, if we were sitting there advising uh, Putin, now you'd be saying you need to do something big to get that fear back into Europe because if Europe starts to grow in confidence and begin to face you down, you've got to, the only thing he's got then is the nuclear threat and he doesn't really want to be using that every five minutes. So I think Putin is in that stage where probably you're looking at him needing a very big offensive this year to push mm. the Ukrainian uh, army back. And if he does that, then he can get back to, well, you can't, you know, Russia's still powerful militarily and maybe give Europe some doubts about this. But at the moment, I think Europe has become in the last year a lot more gung-ho and a lot more confident that, mm. you know, Russia's beatable in, in, in this yeah. scenario and, and they want to see it through now. Or Putin waits uh, for a year until there's a presidential election in the US and uh, and basing his calculation that a Republican gets in, there's already a rump within the Republican Party of, well, why should we be rowing in with this war? It's kind of, you know, a more isolationist trend. Yeah. That he just waits until America, it, it, there's a new president who says, nope, not going to send you over any more toys and then Europe's on its own. Yeah, to 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 that degree, it is. I, only I think last year that probably would have played from a lot stronger again, mm-hmm. uh, where Europe was looking, going, well, hold on, if Russia decides to really push this, we're finished unless America is willing to come in and do it. The last year has kind of changed that. And unless he manages to get the narrative change and prove that Russian military can push uh, Ukraine right back, you're getting a kind of sense now that Germany... France, Britain, indeed, you know, uh, Italy, Spain, Poland, Baltic states are beginning to feel. Yeah, yeah. they're beginning to feel we actually have enough tech to not be afraid of Russia. No, Mm. to not. And because that kind of narrative, I think that would mean it's less of a threat now as to what happens in America because Europe has grown in confidence. So if he wants to win this, he has to find a way of taking Europe's wind out of its sails and stop that confidence growing on that side. They just they need that. Uh, it's also, of course, brought up the, the vexed question of neutrality in not just in Ireland, many European countries. Uh, what's your take, Johnny? What do you think we should be thinking yeah. about? Well, it's a difficult one. I think it, it's time to have some kind of a debate about where we're at. Because, you know, look, simply for the fact that this comes up every single time. Mm. You know, we've seen it now with the Iraq. We've seen it with UN missions. We've seen it in so many areas. And this isn't to say, like, whether, oh, we should give up neutrality. But I think, first of all, we need to debate on what our neutrality actually is. Because I think most Irish people 
don't really, we understand we're neutral, but we've never been neutral like Switzerland. Mm, you know, we've yeah. never been neutral like some other neutral country. We have a military neutrality and we're not taking part militarily, but we will have, we're not neutral on other issues or ethical issues or moral issues or any of those things. But the world has got a lot more complex. It's not like, you know, I mean, we still have a, a debate. I was only talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about, you know, the whole thing of devil era giving his condolences when Hitler died. Yeah. And Irish people still think, oh, my God, what were we asked? What were we doing? Well, if you're a neutral country, that's kind of what you should be doing because you weren't taking sides. Now, we weren't exactly all that neutral in World War Two either. But there is that kind of thing. Like, obviously, when you look back at history and you look back at some things, you will be embarrassed by being neutral sometimes. Mm, yeah. And you say, look, there are certain things. You... So with the kind of affinities we got, Plus, look, if you're talking about someone like Putin, one of the things we have to realise in the modern world is if you're talking about someone like Putin, you know, who has threatened all kinds of things, wiping out Britain and Ireland's just in the way of getting to Britain and all this kind of thing. If somebody is being hit with weapons that are made with microchips coming from a factory in Ireland somewhere in that supply chain, they're going to hit that microchip factory. You know, they're going to hit sites or places. I don't think Irish neutrality makes, you know, world powers turn around and go, well, we won't touch that country. You know, mm. we are so interconnected in the world. I do think we have to have some kind of consideration on where and when. That doesn't mean that we give up neutrality, but it just means we have to define it and when and where and what we expect protection from and how, what is our limit to neutrality or what we're... And it's something we're not good at because I yeah. think we, as soon as we mention neutrality, we all get into, well, we're either neutral or we're not. And there's there can be mm. nothing in between that. And yeah, it's too many yeah. grey areas. Well, in that uh, now. plus also there's not enough of a discussion, uh, you know, the alternative to neutrality being have a significant uh, military of our mm -hmm. own, which we don't have. And we we, don't we've have, seen yeah. from the Ukraine example now, obviously they've been supplied, but... Your adversary can be a multiple in terms of size and you can still fight them to a standstill. Yeah, that's absolutely you can. And, and But like the truth is also in neutrality, I've never been a believer that, you know, Europe or any other place else is absolutely desperate to get the five million people who live on this island <laughs> yes. into the war. I mean, let's say we're, we don't have even in manpower and we don't have much to offer militarily. Mm. We do have other things to offer, though. And we do have other things, both in the backing up of war efforts and, you know, other things we do, whether it's taking in people, humanitarian efforts, all those things. But you do give up some neutrality in each one of those things you do. And uh, we do have to define that a little bit. You know, I don't yeah. think we need to be necessarily a military power all of a sudden, but we need to know what side we're on sometimes. Right. Uh, and so to, uh, to end up on a bit of good news, especially <laughs> if uh, you've just opened your gas bill and had to throw up in a bucket, apparently the economy is doing well. Yeah, apparently. Uh, yeah, we're doing well. And, and IBEC and uh, the Minister's uh, Finance, Michael McGrath, was also on talking about they're, they're revising their, their growth forecasts that the think inflation is coming to coming under control. It's always tough, I think, for people to hear these stories because, you know, there's always this lag between what you see as positives and figures and mm. what people actually experience. You know, you have energy bills coming up and as you say, people are really panicked about the energy coming out of it. Now, you're seeing talk of some of the energy prices coming down, but they're coming down for business consumers, not necessarily for the, the person in their house. All of that, I'm in the middle of a rental crisis, in the middle of a housing crisis. It all, you know, seems it, it seems like kind of spin to say the economy yeah. is doing well and it's there. But nonetheless, there are, as they would say, the underlying uh, factors in the economy are strong and they're, mm. they're probably doing a bit better. We probably can be hopeful that maybe we're not going to be as bad. So I think everybody was expecting another bad recession and things hitting hard. Problem, I think, as well, though, in Ireland, we still have the old thing now. We're all going to look over at the mortgage interest rates going up. 
they're probably going to continue going up by all the indications while Ireland doesn't particularly maybe need them to go up on the inflationary side but you know we're in the Eurozone and the Eurozone's probably going to have to continue so we've all that to contend with too but look yeah I mean you you want some bit of good news for people which is that maybe maybe things aren't looking quite as bad so maybe there's there's some hope out there on the energy front and in the, the, the economy not dipping into recession but yeah I mean look especially for young people I think they find it oh, very yeah. tough to listen to anything like that positive yeah. on that score uh, well maybe hopefully fingers crossed people might actually feel the real world effects of that in the not too distant future Johnny thanks a million for coming into us lovely to see you as ever Johnny Fallon there Moncrief brought to you by Avant Money think you're getting the best value from your bank think again weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.